Listen in to the forum at St. James Church. Let us pray. Set us free, O God, from the bondage of our sins, and give us, we beseech thee, the liberty of that abundant life which thou hast manifested to us in thy Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. That is the collect for today. All of you know this, but it's worth repeating that when we have a collect on a Sunday, that is our prayer, our collection of our prayers. That's why it's a collect, collect, uh, for the week. That prayer is to be said throughout the week. So if you don't do that already, you might make that a practice. Keep your bulletin, open it up, say the collect. It's also worth pointing out that when we say, the Lord be with you and, and with thy spirit at 11.15, let us pray, it doesn't mean let us pray the collect right away. It means let us pray. Keep going, like wait, like a minute. It would be really appropriate. We do like 10 seconds, maybe five. And then the collect, because it's collecting those prayers that the people of God are bringing to the Holy Eucharist on a Sunday. And we are collecting those prayers and offering them to God. But this is not a class about liturgic, so I'll stop there. Very good. So we're reading the, the Gospel of Matthew together, aren't we? And today I am meant to speak with you and facilitate a conversation around conflict. Jesus, the teacher, and the coming conflict. Lucky me. <laughs> so you remember in chapters three and four, Jesus calls disciples. Right? That's one of the first things that he does. He calls people uh, around himself. He's reconstituting uh, the tribes of Israel. A bold thing to do. You're either the son of God or you're a madman. That's what C.S. Lewis said you know, about Jesus in the Gospels. There's no other way around it. He's the son of God or he's a crazy person. Apparently, you think he was the son of God, because you're here. <laughs> um, and so do I. For the record. <laughs> this, is re this is recorded, after all. So here he is. He's reconstituting the people of Israel, the people of God. Israel are the elected people of God to shine forth God's light. So here he is saying, this is now the people of God, to be in communion with me, to be in relationship with me, to follow me, is now to be the people of God. A radical thing. We could see why there might be some conflict brewing in chapters three and four, because these are bold moves. After he calls these people to himself, he goes up on a mountain, which reminds us of what Old Testament character? Moses. Moses. And Matthew wants us to know that this is a new and improved Moses, you know, this is, this is Moses ratcheted up because this is Emmanuel, this is God with us. Uh, Jesus is not just going to get a word from God, he was with God in the beginning and is now in the flesh. So he teaches with this authority as of an only son, as, as if he's God's very own, right? He teaches this community on the mountain and then uh, comes down from the mountain, and we have three triplets of miracle stories. And Ryan looked at some of those with you not too long ago. And what these miracles do 
is they start to draw attention to Israel's teacher, this teacher with a capital T. Attention is coming his way. So what does he tell the people that he has healed? Does he say, go announce it from the mountaintops? No. He says, keep it low key. Present yourself to the priests in the temple. You are clean. You are a part of the people of God. Again, following the Levitical law, if you were not clean in this way, you were not a part of the people. So he's saying, you're clean. Don't run around telling everybody that I made you clean. Just go show the priests and let me get on with the work that the Father has sent me to do. But what do the Pharisees, in particular, Matthew singles out the Pharisees in this instance, how do they reply to these signs of power? Do you recall in chapters, uh, roughly chapter 9, do they say, this is good news, Mimi, what do we think? That that he's been inspired by Satan. Exactly. The devil. Yep. That these signs of power are the work of the prince of demons. That's how we translated the Greek. So that's one of the reasons why Jesus doesn't want word getting out is because he knows that he's going to be misunderstood. And he's not about the business of just being misunderstood for the sake of being misunderstood or creating controversy for the sake of controversy or being provocative so that he might uh, stir up some dust and get a following. That's not what he's about. He's not a rebel rouser. He's a truth teller. He is the truth. And what that's going to do is upset people who don't care for the truth. And before you know it, they're going to have conflict and you're going to have enemies. But even with this accusation of the Pharisees that this is the work of the demons, this teacher of Israel still goes about trying to get his message through. And he gives this ministry of healing and teaching and of exorcism to the disciples in chapter 10. And he sends those disciples out with some instructions. And it's only Matthew that tells us that the disciples are sent not to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We only hear that in Matthew's gospel. And we need to remember a common refrain that we've said from the beginning of this forum series, that Matthew is indeed the most Jewish of the gospels. So Jesus and his friends are sent not to those outside of the house of Israel, but to the lost sheep of Israel. But here's the bad news. The disciples will be rejected and persecuted. But there will also be blessing for those who do help. So we know when Jesus sends these friends out to carry on his ministry, that they are going to win some and lose some. And that it's going to be uh, an arena fraught with conflict and controversy and misunderstanding. So we can say fair enough to that. The Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers, we see that they are beginning to be uncomfortable with Jesus' teaching and what he's saying. But then in chapters 11 and 12, we have Jesus misunderstood or kind of neutral, even with John the Baptist. As John at the beginning of the gospel looked pretty good. Here's the Messiah. Follow, this is the one I've been talking about. Here he is. 
And then John's imprisoned, and he's sort of like, are you the one we're supposed to be looking for? Because I've heard some stuff. So there's apprehension, there's maybe neutrality, maybe there's real, I don't know. But Matthew's giving us a clue that like, okay, not everything is going just kind of uh, the enlightenment ideal of just progress is, here we go. Which of course is not true for us either, but never mind. There's progress, there's failure, there's up and down, there are moments of humanity coming together and doing heroic things, and they're the exact opposite of that all throughout history. Matthew is showing us that this is going to be difficult. And then some of his own, he goes back to his hometown and everything goes really well there, right? No, it's a mess. You know, a prophet is without honor in his own hometown. And your parents are looking for you and your brothers and sisters, who are they? Jesus says, my brothers and sisters are those who do the will of the one who sent me. Provocative. I mean, now bloodlines don't make family, but whether or not you're following his teaching and his way creates brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. I mean, try preaching that at the 910 pulpit. <laughs> or anywhere in America, you know? Because we sort of, the family, the family that prays together stays together. Which is, of course, true. Like, it really matters what we do in our families, and our families really matter. But to even believe that we're hearing in the Gospels things like, let, the, do, let me just bury my dad first. Let the dead bury their dead. If you can't follow me now, get out of town. This is everything. Him, following him, is even more important than the family, is what we're being forced to reckon with. Does that mean family doesn't matter? Please don't hear me saying that. <laughs> it just means that this is the ball game. Follow me now for, for us. Okay, so you see the confusion. You have, well, rather the explicit uh, grumbling from the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers, and now we have the neutrality and confusion of John the Baptist and Jesus's own family and hometown. And then we get to chapter 12, and the Pharisees are upset because uh, Jesus is plucking grain on the Sabbath. So after all of this conflict, it's not surprising that we move into some, uh, a central teaching piece, a discourse in chapter 13 that is hidden in parables. And we're gonna look at some of those today. There are a cluster of five or so parables in chapter 13. And I don't want to tip off too much about uh, what they're about because I want you to do some of that work. But keep in mind that in chapter 13, it's coming right after a lot of this conflict. So he, if he's telling parables after people are misunderstanding him, keep in mind that as you look at those parables, that's what's going on in chapters 12, 11, 10. Does that make sense? Why would Jesus say these parables after this misunderstanding is the question you might ask. All right, maybe we'll look at some of those now. But let me say this. There's something difficult about this being the most Jewish gospel and the, the, the kind of 
language that we get about the Pharisees, scribes, teachers. Because Jesus gets on fire uh, in chapter 23 and starts saying, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Like eight times in a row. So if you think Jesus is always just butterflies and warm feelings, read the Bible. And it should make you uncomfortable because it's like, oh, he sounds pretty judgmental here because he is. (laughs) I mean, he is. And his judgment is about truth and love and God's plan of inclusion and all the things that make us feel good, that God is love, that God wants everybody a part of this. But Jesus has some fierce language. And who else said, woe to you, house of Israel, for thousands of years before Jesus? The prophets. The prophets spoke boldly in criticism of their own people, in judgment of their own people. Was that because they didn't like them? No, they loved them. That was their people. They spoke a word of judgment, a word of woe to you, so that the people might turn and change and live into the great calling that they have. And I think we need to hear Jesus's criticisms of uh, his outright conflict with the Pharisees, the priests, the scribes, the lawyer, and others in the context of him being a Jew. He knows, I did not come, we read in the gospel today, to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. These people, his people, have the keys to the kingdom, have God as father. They are the light that's meant to be for all nations. So it's in a place of deep love and understanding that he has words of real criticism. So instead of hearing Pharisees, Jews, woe to you. It's about us when we read that now, because we're Jesus's friends. We're the people who have the keys. We're the ones who call God father. So not when I hear woe to you, priest, scribe, Pharisee, ding, 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 me, me, tie up heavy burdens for my people, etc. Not Oh, right, of course, the Jews because of the law, and that was before grace, and they were in the dark. Nonsense. Matthew's having none of that. We need to have none of that. Those words are not for permission to be anti-Semitic. Those words are judgment on our own souls. The people that are closest to Jesus, who should be getting it, the Pharisees, that's us. So always when you're reading that, just shine a mirror on yourself, know that Jesus is talking to people that he loves and trusts and knows that they're very close to the truth. Us. Okay. We're going to look at parables. I want to say just a few things and then hopefully hear from you about what these parables might have to say about conflict. But I want to say kind of three things. Hopefully they're connected, but I feel the need to say them before our time is up. One, the church does not have to be afraid of conflict. Uh, The church tends to be a conflict avoidant 
group of people, except for the few who aren't conflict avoidant. Um, and what do I mean? That we should run around having conflict with each other? Of course not. We should be of the one, of one mind, in this, with the same spirit of Christ and of self-serving love, washing each other's feet, being willing to lay down our lives for each other, and even to forgive our enemies. So we should be a light on a hill, at peace in one accord with each other. We should be, and we know that we're walking in the way of Christ if we are. Now, does that mean we should avoid conflict at all costs? Of course not. We can speak the truth to each other with love. Speak the truth to one another in love. Not let me tell you my truth so that I can cut you off at the knees or put a spear through your heart. I'm speaking the truth so that we might grow in love together. And because we have the truth and the truth sets us free, we can speak the truth to one another. So we don't have to be afraid of true speech as the church and as Christians in our fellowship. That's a liberating thing. You can speak the truth in love with each other. So don't be afraid of conflict and think to be Christian is simply to be nice. For me to be a follower of Jesus is to be nice all the time. You should be nice if you're following Jesus or else you have a problem, <laughs> you know? You have a spiritual problem of anger or whatever. Jesus needs to work on that for you if you don't have the capacity to be nice. And yet, we're not a community that's just called to be nice. We're a community that's called to walk in the way of the cross and to walk in the way of truth and to set the world free. And that's going to look like some struggle and conflict and we don't have to be afraid of that. That's the first thing I want to say. The second is that Matthew's community, it's important to know what was going on in Matthew's community when he wrote his gospel in Syria. His community was existing, existed after the destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple was in the year 70. And he was with Jewish Christians, as those earliest Christians were. Jewish. That's why he could write a very Jewish gospel, because they knew what he was talking about. Those were their stories. And Jesus was the Messiah, the you know, son of Abraham, son of David, and Emmanuel. They knew what all of that meant. But what happened after the destruction of the temple and some of the diaspora was this uh, rabbis came together. They're working on what their identity might be. And one of the things that they did in their prayers is sort of uh, be done with heretics, you know, those who don't teach the law or interpret the law properly, and those Christians, okay? So that was a break in their communion with each other. If before they were in the synagogue together, now they're not. And we even have in Matthew's gospel the language of their synagogue and our church. That, that's a new thing in the history of the synagogue and of Jewish uh, Christian relations around the year 80. That's worth having in mind when we hear some of those hard words about the Pharisees in particular, is that they are, they've expelled the Christians from their community. So just know that. And what else do I want to say? Because I said three things, I must come up with three things. There's real tension. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Yes, and not one stroke of the letter is gonna pass away, right? Now, Jesus is the law. 
He is the law. He is not just the interpreter of the law. His way is the law. This law of love, his life, his death. So there's going to be a place, and many places, where there is real tension to the point of saying, you are interpreting the law in such a way that it no longer fits with our interpretation. We have to sit with that paradox. I came to fulfill the law, I came for the sake of the law, and he might be interpreting it in such a way that it breaks in certain places. And I can't clean that up and make it tidy for you. We just have to sit with it. And it, but anything that's in the law, we now understand, is so that we might be uh, built up into his image, Christ, the Messiah. The law is about him. So there's an inherent tension. The parables. Parables are useful uh, because they have us, they tell stories. So what at your table, if you, you know, maybe you just have a representative and quickly share, what in your parable uh, word did you learn? Uh, why would Jesus be saying this parable in the context, literarily? What do we say? Anybody want to share a thought? Please. When we first started, we thought that the wheat and the weeds were different people, that the wheat was people were saved and the weeds were not saved. But then we heard us later on that maybe there are wheat and weeds within each individual person, which would explain why it would be hard to pull out the weeds without destroying the wheat, because it's in each and each one of us has both wheat and weeds within us. I think that's a great read. I think it's a, a very good interpretation and it's a helpful way for us to remember uh, that we are those who are both graciously saved and set free and those under judgment. Both. And it's not to us to decide what part of us is weedy and what part of us is weedy. You know, that's what God does. Yeah, that, and especially, you know, God, God will reveal to us what part is of wheat and what is weedy, I think, you know, in our life of prayer and reflection and throwing ourselves against the rock of Christ, who is the truth, that he will reveal our inner thoughts and be able to separate the weed and the wheats inside of us even now. Not perfectly, all of us will always be conflicted, but never should we be worried about are, are, is that person a wheat or weeds? That's not for us to determine. That's for God to determine. So anytime you hear someone saying categorically this in judgment, don't listen to them. And Christians should be too busy pressing on with the work of building up God's kingdom and showing love to everyone that we don't have time to determine who is wheat and who might be weeds. We literally shouldn't have time to be doing that. Um, as the church. And if you do, it means you have too much time in your hands and you're not walking in the way of Jesus. Juicy? All that has been said, true, but there is one more direct intention probably of Christ in this parable. He says, don't be discouraged if not, if not all your seeds in your fruits, mm. because those fruits will be themselves a sword the ones who didn't get it yet, and they will multiply with the love and communication. Oh, so one of the things we should be aware of 
is that being the church and following in Jesus's way and being students of this teacher and taking on this way of life doesn't mean that we're going to be successful. It doesn't mean that the seeds that we're going to scatter are just gonna blossom up everywhere. It doesn't mean that. If, it, if they do, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. But faithfulness is what we're called to. Not success, faithfulness. Walk in this way, be these kind of people. Are we being these kind of people? Where do we need to sit under Christ, Christ's merciful judgment? so that we become his disciples again. When do I need to hear his woes to the Pharisees so that we might be light and salt? And will that look like the kingdom just taking over the whole world? God willing, but it might look like rejection and failure and persecution and destruction. And Christ will be with us always, even to the end of the ages. Tony, and then I'll have to go celebrate upstairs. Very, very quickly. I think we had a slightly different interpretation. Great. Um, we really felt that the, the last line is, of this particular parable is perhaps the most important. Let anyone with ears listen. Mm. So that what happens to all the grains is it sets how well we listen and pay attention and how faithful we are. Yes. And that is, if, if, if you don't listen and don't do anything about it, you're going to get eaten by the birds. Yes. Yeah, that's right. But it's really that sort of a message. My word is what is important. That's wonderful. So attention, you know, spiritual attention. That's what he's saying, too, about the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers. He says, listen to what they say. They sit on Moses' seat. Listen. Just don't act like they do. Hypocrites. That's his favorite word in, in relation to them, which is to say the fruit of their lives they're not practicing what they're preaching, right? So let the word of God preach to your soul and let it change you, transform you, and then be that person. And then fail and let the word of God preach to your soul and change and be that person. Repeat, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. <laughs> and do that, that's the Christian life. And we're on that journey together as we all sit as the people of God under God's word, Jesus Christ, and allow him to pierce into our souls. And with those who have ears to hear, listen, we have Lent coming up soon. We intensify our capacity to listen during Lent. We should be like that all year round, but we're human. So we're gonna double down in Lent and say, here I am, Lord, here's my soul, I'm listening. And if we do that, we'll be changed. We'll be salt, we'll be light, and the whole world will see and know us by our love, our joy, our hope. To you, Christ, I go. See you later. To learn more about St. James Church, visit stjames.org. That's stjames.org.